This is Pastor's Appreciation Month, October, and we as a congregation wanted to give our pastor and his sweet family a little gift for them to enjoy and remember how much we love and appreciate you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Appreciate that. Thank you all. We'll set that right there. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, We are... I forgot to mention earlier, uh, if you're a guest with us, I'm not James Vickery. Uh, don't even really look like him. I guess we're both kind of tall. But uh, we, uh, I'm Pastor Neil and uh, pastor here at Cypress Street Church of God. And, and James is out of town, and so I'm kind of filling in for him today. But uh, we're going to read our scripture for this morning. And it's found in Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. And scripture is important to us. Uh, here at Cypress Street, we, we do this pretty much every week. We take a moment and just read the, the primary scripture for that week's sermon. And uh, we do so just to emphasize and remind ourselves uh, that this is important. That God's words to us uh, are important. That these are uh, not just your, this is not your average book. It's actually a compilation of lots of books written over thousands of years to... Uh, or at least over a thousand years, by multiple authors all talking about the same God, the same plan for salvation. And, and so it's exciting that we get to have these Bibles right at our fingertips. And that's something that many Christians in the past have not had. Uh, also, as you're finding that, if you're a guest with us today, um, there's a Connect card somewhere in front of you, hopefully. And if you've uh, never filled one of those out, and would like to, it's just a way for me to get in touch with you, even just a name. If you're on Facebook or something, I can probably look you up and just send you a message and see if you have any questions. So um, you can get in touch with us that way. And we can put those in the offering plates when we do that later, or just leave them on your seat. Let's read together. Uh, If you're still looking for it, page 1224 and a lot of the Bibles in our pew. This is a letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus, and this is how he starts it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also, who were included in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, 
you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Amen. We're starting into a new series today. It's a short one. It's just going to be three weeks long. And uh, it's titled Election. But won't you be glad to know it has nothing to do with Hillary or Trump. <laughs> we hear enough of that, don't we? And, uh, and so this is a, kind of a diff- this is actually about the, the biggest election of all. And, and of course to hear the media talk about it or to hear the politicians talk about it, this is 2016, November 8th, the biggest election of all. And, and uh, it'll have you know, huge worldwide repercussions. But the election we're talking about today, I promise you, is even bigger. And uh, if you can believe it. And so that's the one we're going to talk about today and, and for the next couple of weeks. And after that, we're going to start a little series on the book of Ephesians and the church in Ephesus. And, and so maybe it's appropriate that today we're looking at Ephesians 1 and kind of getting an introduction to that. And we'll pick the book of Ephesians back up here in just a few weeks. But, you know, we, we think about election and and it's a, you know right now it's just a it's a word we don't like and so maybe it's a bad choice of sermon title but we're just going to talk about this concept that shows up again and again in scripture of God saying calling the church the elect you know Jesus called his followers the elect and and the apostle Peter did and the Apostle Paul uses these terms like we just read, you know, chose and predestined and called and, and all these things. And, and it's, it's funny, this, this thing called election has caused the capital C church a lot of trouble through the years. Uh, I don't know, you know, if you're very much uh, a student of theology at all, but, or, or of different denominations, you know, but this is one of those topics, one of those doctrinal topics that things got kind of haywire with, you know. Uh, people kind of took sides over it. And, and so you've got groups like, you know, the Presbyterians and other Reformed groups that, you know, they emphasize the sovereignty of God as, as, his, as his wanting to choose, you know, this person's going to go to heaven, this person's going to go to hell. And, and then you've got other people who, uh, you know, take a, a different stance and the Church of God movement that we're affiliated with is one of those, and, and Wesleyans and Nazarenes and different ones. We take a, a stance that traditionally that said, well, uh, you know, what about free will? What about human choice? You know, we're not all just puppets on a string, right? And, and uh, would God even want that? And so there's been this back and forth for, for a long time and, and a lot of disagreements and bickering. And, you know, like I say, a lot of the denominations that we have in our country and even around the world are largely based on a differing view of this doctrine we call election. So why even dive into it? Well, first off, because it's there. <laughs> you know, it's right there prominently in our New Testament. And I don't really believe in dodging major consistent themes and passages of Scripture just because they're harder for us or more of a challenge or, uh, or because they make us uncomfortable or they don't, doesn't feel like they match up with our, our preconceived notions about how all this works. And second of all, because it's pretty important. <laughs> it's pretty important stuff. I mean, if, if God is saying that, you know, he has a people who are the elect, 
Well, think about it. Who you are, uh, you know, who elects you and why they elect you matters a lot. I mean, think in terms of our election that we have going on right now. We're going to elect a whole bunch of politicians and a lot of them are going to forget who elected them. And a lot of them are going to forget why they were elected. And this happens every time. <laughs> we send them up there and they start thinking that they were elected uh, to line their pockets, right? Or, uh, you know, to get some help from the lobbyists or uh, to, you know, they get concerned with their Washington stuff and they get in their little Washington world and they forget about the regular old folks back home, you know, who have to pay our bills and all that kind of stuff and, and our taxes and, and their salaries and uh, all that kind of thing. And so we know what happens when you forget who elects you or why. And so if this theme in scripture is true, then surely who picked you and why is essential to fulfilling your purpose. If you are the elect of God as Jesus has called you, then it's pretty important that we get straightened out who picked us and why so that we know what our purpose is in this life and how to fulfill it. Ultimately, this is about the essentials of our faith, about the plan of salvation. And, and so we're going to dive into kind of some basics over the course of this short series. Now, if you grew up, this, I've got to just give this disclaimer first. If you grew up steeped in, in Church of God theology the way I did, and, uh, or, you know, a lot of you, that's not the case for you. So I'm just talking to a handful of people right now. If that was you, and you've never heard a Church of God preacher talk about, or much less do a series called Election, <laughs> then I'm just going to ask you to stick with me for three weeks uh, before you call Steve Nelson and talk to him about my credentials <laughs> or ask him to send, him, send those credentials over to the Presbyterians. They wouldn't want me either. So uh, just hang with me for three weeks and, and hear me out before you make any phone calls. Deal? <laughs> now, as we dive in today, I was just, and I was thinking about the, the main purpose of this first message. I thought I'd just kind of bring up a common experience that a lot of us have had. Have you ever bought something, maybe you, know, maybe you ordered it and it came in, and then you open it up and it says, some assembly required? <laughs> and then you're like, some? You know, it looks like a lot of assembly required. Now, what I really want to know is, because I think we've all had to assemble something. You know, we've all gone to Target and brought home a bookshelf or something that had to be assembled at some point. So I want to know how many of you are there that you kind of like to just chuck the instruction manual aside and just dive in. Anybody? <laughs> okay, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one. Those things are so boring. And to top it off, they usually are poorly written and don't make much sense anyways. So what's the point, right? It just wastes a lot of time trying to read and decipher what in the world they were saying and figure out which pages aren't in Chinese. And, and so... <laughs> It's just easier just to dive in and go for it. But if you're like me and sometimes you just dive in and go for it, then you've probably also had the experience at some point of finishing and yet you've got one part left in your hand, right? And something somewhere along the road got out of order a little bit and, and so... You know, you hit the power button and it doesn't turn on or, or uh, you're sitting there looking at it and it looks a little crooked or, you know, there's something went wrong because you didn't follow the steps in the order that they were supposed to go and, and 
So then you have to go hunt for that manual that you tossed aside and, and start reading it then. We probably have all done that, or at least seen someone that did that and laughed at them. But a lot of us, we do this when it comes to salvation and when it comes to our faith. We do this in the sense that we don't really think we need to read the instruction manual. It's kind of boring anyway. And, and we all know how it works. You know, you, you be good. You know, you follow the rules. Uh, you know, you... You, do, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't party, you don't hang out with the people that do, you, you clean up your act, you, you, know, you don't cheat people, you don't lie. You, you do good. And, and then God sends you to heaven. If you do bad, you go the other direction. And it's pretty simple, it's pretty straightforward. That's how probably most people in our culture look at it, right? And so why do we need the instruction manual? We know what church is about, we know what religion is about, we know how all that works. Now, some of us, you know, who heard enough sermons or gone to Sunday school enough, we wouldn't put it that way. We wouldn't say it that way. And yet sometimes our attitudes and our behaviors give away the, the idea that we still think that there are things that we do that affect the outcome. You know, that, that what we do or don't do determines our destination and determines our salvation. So what I want to do today is just kind of go back to the basics. Go back to the basics of Scripture and, and read the instruction manual, as it were. And, and so, you know, if you're like, oh wow, uh, this is going to be the most boring sermon ever. We're reading the instruction manual, we're talking about election. Oh, <laughs> what's he doing to us? He's killing us. Well, just bear with me today, because... You know, there's some things you can chuck the instruction manual aside. I mean, if you, if you brought home a three-bookshelf shelf from Target, go for it. Chuck it. But most of us are a little slower to toss that aside when it's something we spent a lot of money on, right? <laughs> or something that is going to cost a lot to replace. And this is one of those things. When it comes to our faith in God, our salvation, the fundamentals of our faith that we don't want to just chuck the instruction manual aside. This is one of those that's worth going through some of the details on and just double-checking and making sure we get things in order. Now, we read a passage a little bit ago. This is from the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. It's one of several passages in our New Testament that carry this same theme. Some of them are written by Peter. Some are written by Paul. And also, as we mentioned, Jesus uses this concept as well. And so it's one of several, and it's a good one. And he talks about this concept of election. But, you know, I use that, our, our current election, as kind of an example as we started, but it's safe to say that the Apostle Paul had no concept of an election in the sense that we have the concept of in America, right? In his day, the regular folks didn't have a say, didn't have a vote. They didn't go to voting booths to decide who would go. I mean, even the Roman Senate, it was not like they elected the senators from the common folks, you know. They, uh, you had to be of a certain status to even be considered, and then the people in power chose the people to be in power. And I mean, it, you, it was the same families, the same power holders, you know, it was you took office by them choosing you, uh, or by 
you know, by the family you were born into or by some kind of treachery or violence or war. That's how power exchanged hands in his day. You didn't go to the voting booth and say, hey, I elect this person, <laughs> you know, I picked that person. And this is one of our obstacles in coming to one of a passage like this and understanding what he's talking about. Because when we talk about choosing people or picking people or electing people, that's one of the pictures that we have that comes to mind. You pick this person, not that person. But in this concept of election, the one doing the electing is just one, not many. We call that the electorate, right? Here in America we call it the electorate. It's, it's everybody that can vote and everybody that's going to vote. Well, in, in this election, the electorate is one. And in our elections, you, you pick one person and you reject another. But in this concept of election, there are many that are picked for one purpose, for one office, as it were. So it's an imperfect analogy for us because, you know, our picture of what an election is and, and Paul's picture are just miles apart. He had no concept like we do of this. He had his own cultural concept and worldview. And that was largely shaped by who he was and where he came from. Just the way yours is shaped by the same thing. And so he wasn't an American. He was an Israelite. He was a Jew. He was a Jew among Jews. He was an Israelite among Israelites. He grew up with that and he was writing to a lot of Israelites as well. that were scattered all over the Roman Empire. And so, when we read a passage like this, and I'm just gonna, we're going to hit some highlights here of what we just read. He said things like, He chose us in Him before the creation of the world. He said, He predestined us for adoption to sonship. He said, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He also said, in him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And finally, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal. That's the, the Holy Spirit, which is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Now, from our cultural standpoint, that means one thing. To Paul's, it means another. And, and when you put yourself in, in his shoes... What do you think comes to mind for a first century Jew, Israelite, when they're using terms like this and talking about concepts like this? You know, as he talks about, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Well, they came from a chosen people, right? When you open your Old Testament, which was Paul's only scripture, the closest thing they had to a Bible, in his day, as the church movement just began. When you open that Old Testament, you read about God choosing a people for his own. When you read he's writing about being predestined for adoption to sonship, they were chosen, pre-planned sons of Abraham, born into the family. When you read about having redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. 
You know, it was, it was with Israel that all that began. That God said, you know, offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of your sins. It'll be the shedding of blood that atones for what you've done. And for Paul, this reaches its culmination in Jesus, who shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. When we read about, again, being chosen according to the plan of him who works everything in conformity for his will, we think of the, the people that he chose to be a blessing to all the nations. And the last bit up there, being marked in him with a seal, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. You know, they, the Israelites were marked, and the thing that marked them was circumcision. You read it again and again in the Old Testament, you read it in the New Testament. It set them apart. It was the mark of their covenant with God. It, sealed, it was a seal guaranteeing, you know, like a deposit, guaranteeing their inheritance. And their inheritance was the promised land. And this is the worldview that Paul had. And when he talked about this concept of election, when he talked about being chosen, that's the picture that he got in his mind, not going to the voting booth on November 8th or whatever day in November. And so it's important to note that if we're ever going to arrive at kind of what he was thinking as he wrote these things out. But this is not just Paul trying to retell the gospel in terms of Israel. Because he didn't have to try. That was their whole understanding of how all this works. And it's like the church was Israel 2.0, or really a fulfillment of Israel. It was not just, a, I mean, everything that God had done in, in the Old Testament scriptures was now being fulfilled in Jesus, through Jesus, and in his church. And so this was, this was just how it worked for Paul. He's not just trying to be cute or have a great metaphor. <laughs> He's taking everything he ever knew as an Israelite, part of the chosen people of God, and he's explaining the gospel in those terms. The only terms that he knows of how to deal with something like this. See, he understood without question that when people are brought into a covenant relationship with God, where through faith they're able to have sins forgiven, or promises and inheritances and all these blessings that are ours in Christ, he understood that whenever something like that happened, it is ever and always because God chose them. God chose them. We see this in the Old Testament and the New. And, and I'm just going to give you a, a couple examples. In Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, we read, The Lord your God, this is a book believed to be written by Moses. He's talking to the Israelites. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. See, the point being, you know, God's saying to them, I didn't pick you because you were impressive. I didn't pick you because you were strong and mighty. I didn't pick you because you were the best of the best. You were nothing. 
And I picked you. Because I'm God. Another example of this is found in the Psalms. The psalmist writes, But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. So blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. And check out what he says right after this. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who hope is in his whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and to keep them alive in famine. And again, he reiterates that you know, this is a psalm of Israel, a song of worship that they would sing. And they're saying, they're declaring, the Lord chose us, and it's not because of our strength. There's no amount of military might that's going to save our necks. It's God alone who has the power to save And let's go to the New Testament for one more example. And this comes from uh, the book of Romans in a very complicated, long chapter about Israel. And so we're going to just kind of jump in in the middle of it. And Paul is talking about, in fact, let's just do a quick um, Bible trivia, Old Testament trivia. You ready? All right, there's Abraham. Everyone knows Abraham? Familiar with that one? Uh, Abraham's promised son, what's his name? Isaac, okay? And uh, does anyone remember who Isaac married? Anybody? Starts with R. (laughs) Rebecca. Alright, and so Rebecca then gave him twins. Alright, twins. Anyone remember the twins' names? Hey, that's pretty good. Jacob and Esau. Now Esau came out first, and according to tradition, he should have been the firstborn, the, the son that would be the prominent one. Uh, even though they were, you know, twins, whoever comes first, he gets all the, all the glory. Uh, so it should have been Esau. But God said, no, it's going to be Jacob. That's his prerogative. <laughs> He's God. Uh, and it says, he, so Paul reminds them of that event and says, and this happened in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, Rebecca, that the older will serve the younger. That didn't make sense to her. That didn't make sense to them. But God said, this is how it's going to be. And Paul uses this as an illustration to say, to point out, affirm that it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And he's talking about salvation. He's talking about who's chosen. He uses this example to say, look, it doesn't matter what order you think you come in. It doesn't matter how much you want it. It doesn't matter how hard you work at it. What matters is what God thinks and what God does and what he chooses to do. And none of us are powerful enough to save ourselves. None of us, no matter how bad we want it, are going to save ourselves. None of us, no matter how bad we, no matter how hard we work for it, are going to save ourselves. It doesn't matter. You know, we don't like to hear that because in, in our culture, it, you know, we value the power of the individual. The, I mean, you, you put your mind, we tell our kids, right? You put your mind to it. You work hard. There's nothing you can't achieve. 
And so all of a sudden we get to scripture and God's like, eh, not so fast. I'd like to see you save yourself. <laughs> this is not going to happen. That doesn't happen by works. It doesn't happen by human desire. It doesn't matter how much blood, sweat, and tears you pour into it. It's all about how much blood, sweat, and tears I poured into it. And so we're going to, you know, I, I realize, I recognize that some of this is uncomfortable for us. This idea of God electing, picking, choosing. We're trying to figure out how does that work. I mean, if, if God's, you know, picking, does that look like, you know, he picks this person for heaven, he picks that person for hell. I, that doesn't really fit with my image of God and with the whole idea of, of human free will and choice that we read about so much in Scripture. So how does this jive? And we're really going to get into that next week. As we talk about, this week we're talking about the electorate, God. Next week we'll talk about the elect, the people he chooses. And it'll really kind of get into more of that, how that works kind of stuff. But for this week, I just want us to not miss the biggest point of all. When, when the New Testament writers talked about election and this concept, and they used words like predestined and choosing and, and all those kinds of things, there's the big point that we can't afford to miss if we want to get things in correct order, right? With our instruction manual. The first thing we can't miss is that it's about God. That salvation is not about how good you are. It's about how good God is. It's not about how good you are. It's about how good God is. There is nothing we could do, nothing we could think, nothing we could say that would save ourselves. Salvation is not about how good we are, it's about how good God is. And we struggle with this. We struggle with it for all the reasons I've mentioned and more. You know, just the society that we grew up in, our our concept of how all these things should work, we struggle with it. And so, this comes out in different ways. I mean, there's not many of us that would stand up and say, uh, well, you know, I'm going to earn my way into heaven. We wouldn't put it like that. But there are people, many of us know them, who, you know, they feel like, ah, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough to be saved. I've done too much wrong. And some of those people, they won't even come inside a church building because they're just not good enough to be a church person. They're not good enough to go there, to be around people like us that are so holy and have it together, right? Uh, they're, they're not, they just feel like they could never measure up or do what it takes. They're just not cut out for it. And essentially they're saying, well, you have to earn your way, and I can't do it. There, there are Christians who live in constant guilt and shame, who are constantly, you know, at, either in their hearts or at an altar, just saying, you know, I, I can't measure up, I can't get right, I can't do this thing. I'm just not being good enough. I can't ever measure up. And if that's you today, or if it's someone that you love today, 
you need to hear salvation is not about how good you are it's about how good he is and of course there's another group of people another way that this manifests itself in our lives and those are the people who at least subconsciously believe they are good enough that they've lived a very good life for about as long as they can remember that they're not like the sinners and you know again they might not say I've earned my way to heaven but they might expect things from God along the way <laughs> you know well why, why is this happening to me you know, I never touched a drink of alcohol and you're telling me I have that, doctor? I never smoked. I didn't do all that stuff. How could this be happening to me? I didn't sleep around. This couldn't be happening to me. I lived a good life. You know, I gave faithfully. How is it that I'm having, you know, to file bankruptcy here? And so we expect things from God. And this is really hard for us to identify in ourselves. But sometimes it crops up like that. When a tragedy strikes. Or, or sometimes when a tragedy strikes someone else. We learn that we have this view. You know, we, we look out and we say. We see someone, you know, on whom tragedy has fallen. And we say, how could that happen to them? How could that happen to them? They live for you faithfully, God. They, I mean, if anyone is righteous, they are righteous. If anyone's right with you, they're right with you. I mean, a servant, a sweet spirit, she doesn't deserve this. And we reveal our thinking. That somehow, according to what we do, we can earn God's blessing. That we can deserve God's blessing. The truth is, and this is the big truth of this whole concept as presented in the New Testament for us, that there was nothing and there remains nothing that you could do to be worthy of anything from God. Nothing you could do to earn His favor. Nothing you deserved but death. Can you accept that today? That's a hard one. Sometimes. Nothing you deserve but death. Death is what we all earned ourselves when we rejected God as God. Yes, death is a tragedy. It's our tragedy that we need to own before we'll ever be able to understand this concept of salvation the way it's outlined for us by Jesus and his apostles. The only reason that we have hope today, the only reason that we can put faith in a God-man named Jesus, the only reason that you can pray and believe that God hears your prayers the only reason that even your smallest, 
most insignificant sin against God can be forgiven. The only reason is because God predestined, preplanned, chose, foreordained to save. He did so before you believed. He did so before you even lived. He chose to do it. Not because you were so impressive. Not because I was so strong. Not because we followed all the rules. But because he's good. This is a fundamental truth. And as long as we believe that somehow it depends on us and on what we do, that the blessings and the salvation and the forgiveness are dependent on our behavior, on our choices, on our action, on our behalf, we'll never understand or have adequate gratitude for the fact that God chose to send Jesus Christ because He so loved the world before the world ever loved him. Now some of us, we've never dared to believe because we knew we could never measure up. And today, the the thing you need to apply from this is just to own that no one ever has done enough to deserve it. And no one ever will. And that has never stopped him from choosing to save. Some of us believers need to repent today for acting as though we could ever earn anything from God in and of our own power. And all of us today need to learn to worship in greater awe and wonder at God's initiative and His goodness to us when we could never deserve it. That's what Paul is actually doing here in this letter that we read. It's it's the very beginning of his letter to the Ephesians and he opens with praise and he's just praising God for what he's done. Because to Paul, this is incredible. I realize that, you know, most of us were not Paul and, and we're not... You know, we don't get all giddy and excited about theological concepts. (laughs) This is more than a theological concept. This is your entire hope. And so just listen to a little bit of what Paul says and just hear the praise and the wonder in his voice as he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. In accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. To the praise of his glorious grace. I like that. Do you respond in worship when you think about God choosing you when you could never have earned it or deserved it? 
You know, as we wrap this thing up, I just want to re-emphasize one more time that, I mean, even in the Old Testament, this thing was never about following the rules to earn your way to heaven. (laughs) That's a man-made religion. Uh, In fact, you know, the famous Ten Commandments. This was pointed out to me the other day. It kind of blew my mind. The famous Ten Commandments, you know, the thou shalt nots. (laughs) Don't kill, don't cheat, don't, you know, all those things. Don't covet what's not yours. Don't, you know, honor your father and your mother. All those rules that we have that we're supposed to follow. I would just be curious. If we hit the streets with a microphone, you know, like they do on the late night shows and all, and, and just ask people, you know, about the Ten Commandments, how many of them would say, yeah, I mean, those are the rules you follow if you want to go to heaven, right? Those are the big rules. We put them in our courthouses. We put them everywhere. These are the rules you follow. This is what the Bible's about. You've got these ten big rules. You follow them all, you're good. And yet it was pointed out to me just recently that I'd never thought of it this way. That the rules came after God had already chosen that people for himself. In fact, hundreds of years after he chose that people for himself. You know, the rules actually came after the rescue. I mean, God sent Moses and delivered his people out of Egypt before giving them one solitary rule to follow. He picked them, he saved them, he rescued them, he delivered them, and then he said, this is what it looks like to live as my people. But he had already picked them. He had already chosen them. He had already rescued them before he gave one single rule. And in Scripture, time and again, even with Jesus we see this. When Jesus would come and he would heal somebody, right? And he would say, your sins are forgiven. And then he'd say, go and sin no more. The blessings, the choosing, the electing have always happened before a single rule was given or anything was asked of us. That's because it's about God. That's to prove that this thing, this salvation thing, was never about how good we could be or how good you are. It is always about how good God is. And that's something we should celebrate. Because the truth is, ain't none of us good enough. And that's an incredible truth that we claim today. This is not to say that God doesn't ask anything of us. On the contrary, you could say that such a rich, undeserved gift would invite the giver to be able to ask almost anything he wanted to of us and how could we turn him down? I mean, right? In your life, if someone gave you, like, you know, here's a mansion, I'll pay the taxes on it. <laughs> Enjoy it. You know, here's nice cars and all that. You know, if someone just handed you everything that you could ever need or want for the rest of your life, and then they said, hey, could you stop by and check my mail while I'm out of town? You wouldn't be like, the nerve. <laughs> 
He could ask anything. You'd be like, sure, you know, you want me to come over and pet your dog? I'll come pet your dog, you know. There's nothing that they couldn't ask. And so it is with God. There's things, I mean, we were chosen for a purpose, and we're going to get into that in the weeks to come. But today, just grasp the truth. That there's nothing you could do, nothing you could earn. You'll never be good enough. The beauty of the message of the gospel is that God is good. And he picked us before we were even born. He picked and chose to save before we could ever earn anything of it. And that's written all over the pages of scripture and we get to celebrate it as one of the great truths of our faith. I invite you to come back and hear more about what's next. But today, if you're here and you've just really struggled with, am I good enough to be one of these church people? Am I good enough for God to accept me? Come to the altar. Come to the altar of your heart and accept that God is good enough even when you're not. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your plan of salvation, for your goodness to us, how blessed we are to have a God like you. Lord, we, some of us at least, need to confess that we've tried to earn your favor a time or two. And maybe on some level we've thought that it was up to us. And today... We confess that it's all about you. God, help us to live in worship and in an adequate response to the greatness of what you've done for us. When all we deserved was death, you gave us life. We thank you and we praise you. In the name of our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.